For now, it's very encouraging that Vietnam and the Philippines announced that later this year, they will resume their joint oceanographic and marine science research expeditions. Welcome to Baker's Dozen, a podcast about geopolitics from RAIN, Risk Assistance Network and Exchange. I'm Roger Baker. At the recent meeting of the Quad, members agreed to launch an enhanced initiative to tackle illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, so-called IUU fishing. Throughout the Indo-Pacific, fishing and competition over access to maritime protein resources play a strong role in regional relations and intentions. China has effectively weaponized its fishing fleets through the establishment of maritime militias, a pattern followed by countries like Vietnam, and even Russia is now considering similar actions. Perhaps even more important than subsea hydrocarbons or mineral resources, it is increasing consumption of a limited regional fish, crab, squid, and other maritime protein resources that drives offshore geopolitics in the enclosed South China Sea. To explore these issues further, I'm joined today by James Borton, a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute of Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the author of the recent book, Dispatches from the South China Sea, Navigating to Common Ground. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Roger, for this invitation. You know, as we as we begin this conversation, I guess the question for me, uh, and, and maybe to help those who are listening, is to really understand is, why does the South China Sea matter? We hear about it all the time in this concept of competition between the United States and the Chinese, um, between territorial uh, disputes, uh, movement of ships, overflights of aircraft, uh, the question of the, the Philippines and their relationship with China. But if we were to really look at it, what, what would you say are the reasons that we can help people understand why the South China Sea matters? You know, this is a complex and huge question, but about what, why does the South China Sea matter? But China's emergence uh, as a maritime power has collided with America's longstanding dominance in the Pacific and giving rise to a mismatch in perceptions between these two nations. Uh, Beijing views their increased naval and coast guard operations and fishing fleets in the South China Sea as normal and only reflect its evolving dynamic growth. Washington believes its core interests are threatened from freedom of navigation to upholding the unimpeded flow of commerce through these international waters. As a result, both China and the U.S. are bolstering their military presence in the region and with that risking the possibility of naval collisions in the sea. But let's be clear, uh, the South China Sea is one of the most important economic and environmental regions in the world. China's rapid economic development has driven explosive growth in demand for the ocean's natural resources and fish, offshore oil and gas, and seabed minerals. Yet tensions over conflicting sovereignty claims in the sea exacerbated by China's unilateral expansion of its maritime ambitions have led to overfishing, illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing, marine pollution, and the degradation of natural marine habits. The sea contains the second most used sea lane in the world and is an essential maritime crossroads for trade with over 65% of China's maritime 
trade transiting through the waterway and nearly 80% of global trade representing nearly $5 trillion worth of annual goods. These waters are also home to one of the world's most important sea lines of communication connecting the economies of Northeast Asia with the Middle East oil terminals and European markets. So as you've noted, there's, there's many different aspects that go into uh, this region that we're looking at, right? It's, it's territorial integrity, it's uh, resource acquisition, it's um, broad-based strategic supply lines that move through that area, it's defensive relationships or defensible relationships between different countries. And in some ways, this uh, area is, is analogous um, to the Caribbean in the idea that it's an enclosed uh, waterway with lots of different countries claiming pieces of it. And, and so there's a lot of overlap that we see. It's a pretty complex geography here. Um, how have these tensions evolved over the last decade or so? And what are some of the implications that you're seeing? For years, China, Vietnam, the Philippines, Indonesia, Brunei, Malaysia, and Taiwan have been engaged in trans-border rising tensions and a conflict flashpoint over the territorial claims in this body of water. As part of its declared blue water maritime expansion, China imposed a nine-dash line that encompasses approximately 90% of the three million square kilometers in the South China Sea. Within this area, China makes sovereignty and maritime claims, and some analysts view the nine-dash line as a maritime border reflected in the use of dashes rather than a continuous line. In 2016, the UN Arbitration Court ruled against China in their dispute with the Philippines over the South China Sea, stipulating that China's maritime claims are inconsistent with the Law of the Sea Convention. But over the past six years since that ruling, Beijing, in a total disregard for the arbitration ruling, has ambitiously and recklessly reclaimed atolls and reefs, transforming them into islands that are being used to bolster China's military capability. China has turned seven disputed reefs into missile-protected island bases in recent years and ratcheting up the tensions. In the course of these damaging reclamations and dredging operations, South China Sea coral reefs have been destroyed, and along with that, a sharp decline in the area's biodiversity. It would seem for many that the scramble for resources in the South China Sea is more about a fight for fish rather than oil or atolls and rocks. So, so, so James, as we, as we look at this region, you know, as you've pointed out, this is an area that is geopolitically significant for multiple reasons. Um, one is the question of uh, national territory and sovereignty over uh, maritime resources. This is an enclosed sea, and therefore uh, the, the complication of sorting out uh, whose territory is what, whose waters are whose, uh, is extremely difficult, particularly with the number of the countries ringing around and claiming areas. It's important for maritime protein. It's important for offshore oil and gas resources. People are looking at it for um, seabed mineral resources. And of course, this is a critical, critical trade route that we see um, moving through, uh, moving goods and services uh, you know, up to Northeast Asia and all the way out around uh, through the Strait of Malacca and down in particular the energy resources running through the Middle East. So, so it's a very complex region that we're looking at. Um, 
And the maritime space is one that's often overlooked um, in the idea that people consider countries land um, and the sea is kind of this open space. And here, of course, that's not the way that it works. A as you're looking at this, um, you know, you, you've focused on fishing. Um, wh what is one of the reasons why you focus on that as one of the center aspects? A and how do you see some of the um, challenges and ways to manage uh, some of the IUU fishing that we've talked about in addition to uh, uh, legitimate fishing rights within the region? Uh, I really regard myself as a waterman and writer and not necessarily as a policy analyst. And so having grown up in the Chesapeake Bay, I understood the importance and significance of the ecosystems. And so my closest friends in Southeast Asia over the last 20 years or so in my reporting have been marine scientists. And more specifically, I have been traveling back and forth to Vietnam since their reformation and renovation of their economy in 1996, 97. And in the course of those travels, I was introduced not only to uh, ranking senior marine biologist, but also to the fishermen in Haiphong, in Da Nang, and even in the Mekong Delta. The concern expressed to me, not only from those fishermen and in conversations uh, in my travels in the Philippines in the past, is that the fishermen are facing significant economic losses uh, owing to the collapse of all inshore fisheries. And although ag agriculture uh, does provide some uh, replacement employment in the medium term, but what I have heard from the fishermen uh, and from the marine biologists is the South China Sea is moving quickly towards a complete collapse of fishery stocks. And this is attributed to overfishing and climate change. And it's going to prove catastrophic. Uh, and the prospect of the South China Sea claimants uh, engaging in more conflicts over access to these fisheries is a real and eminent threat. Right, and it's, it's worthwhile pointing out, I think, that um, you know, uh, the, it may not be as obvious to, to some listeners in some parts of the world, but in the Indo-Pacific region, in the Asia-Pacific region, maritime protein makes up a substantial part of animal protein in diets, and therefore its significance is much higher um, within that region. And the FAO has pointed out that there's been a massive increase in the consumption of maritime protein products of fish and things uh, over the last five to seven years. And so we do see this huge surge in in the, the uptake and in the utilization of the region and the significance within the region is much higher than perhaps in other parts of the world. Well, absolutely. The, uh, the body of water with its uh, shared stocks or migratory fish uh, represents, what, nearly 10% of the world's total catch so China's high seas fishing fleet, the largest and farthest ranging in the world, underscores the nation's growing need for fish-based feed, not just fish for human consumption, and is a key driver of overfishing in the East China Sea and the South China Sea. So these Chinese trawlers, and I have seen them, uh, and their megaton 
fish processing tankers are plundering the sea and other oceans. In the eyes of many observers, China is using their control of the fishing grounds as a lever for influence on all its ASEAN neighbors. So you're, you're absolutely right. In terms of the IUU fishing, uh, a global illegal fishing index created by the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime ranks China as the worst offender. Uh, after all, they have up to 800,000 vessels. So China's fishing fleet is by far the largest in the world, and the Chinese fishermen, having exhausted domestic grounds, now travel, uh, as you have read, to distant waters like the Gulf of Guinea and West Africa and the Pacific Islands for their catches. The concept of a fair allocation and enforcement of the maritime law on overfishing and illegal fishing is particularly challenging, if not a conundrum, uh, in the South China Sea. Um, China can make a case that its geography, population, maritime law enforcement capabilities, and so on, warrant a fair allocation encompassing or reflecting its claimed 80% of the South China Sea. However, the understood law of the commons, as you referenced earlier, that all oceans are a common heritage for all mankind, coupled with security cooperation among claimant nations, coast guards may very well succeed in decreasing the exploitation of fisheries. Right, and one of, and one of the interesting things to me was that, you know, at the latest Quad meeting, as I mentioned earlier, um, they put direct attention to IUU fishing. Now, some people would argue, you know, as you've noted with the numbers, that would be a, that that is just one more action, quote, against China. But for lots of these countries, um, you know, fishing represents maybe a small percent of the workforce, but a very large political force within the countries. Uh, it's an important factor within there. And again, that, that food security dynamic um, is critical. And as the Quad looks at expanding IUU um, uh, uh, attention on IUU fishing, I think what they're looking at primarily initially is information sharing, um, even finding where these fishing fleets are, because there's a lot of legitimate fishing that takes place, and then fishing boats will turn off their transponders, or they'll slip into somebody else's waters, or they'll use a different net than is than is uh, allowed within a certain geography. Um, aside from information sharing, well, what other tools do you see as being useful for um, managing or balancing um, this component, the IUU component of, of fishing and overfishing? Before I answer that directly, let me just reference that, you know, last month, the White House, President Biden, held the U.S. ASEAN Summit. And one of the key takeaways was the U.S. pledge to ramp up its maritime presence in the Indo-Pacific region to check China's rise by sending uh, America's National Coast Guard across the ocean to battle the ever-growing challenge of illegal fishing. And the U.S. has pledged to send U.S. Coast Guard vessels to the region to conduct these training missions and take part in joint maritime security operations. And this also includes the transfer of decommissioned Coast Guard ships to Southeast Asian countries, including Vietnam and the Philippines, that will also be prioritized to naturally promote a free and open Pacific. But this initiative is also to provide training and support in, if you wish, this kind of maritime uh, uh, fishing uh, management that needs to be in place. Uh, the maritime law enforcement, U.S. Naval Coast Guard oversight training, I think, can 
possibly be supported by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. NOAA has done work uh, there in the South China Sea in the past and also with China. And so this, in addition, may mitigate uh, perhaps any perceived threats from Beijing. I think that, that the opportunity is now to rally the Association of Southeast Asian Nations to form and create a ASEAN Fisheries Commission that may succeed in tapping down China's strategy of unilaterally imposing its own laws for sustainable fishing. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting concept. And, you know, we see differences within the ASEAN states. In, Indonesia is, is now uh, jealously guarding its waters and um, blowing up boats that it captures, um, mostly Vietnamese ships, but also some, some Chinese. Um, the, the Vietnamese have established a maritime militia as part of its protection of its fisheries. Uh, the Philippines has had a very interesting um, uh, uh, mixed bag of responses. Uh, it, it ran the uh, international court case against uh, Chinese claims and, and won the court case. But then uh, in a presidential change, it did not follow through in, uh, in implementing that. We've had another political change in the Philippines now. And we're waiting to, to sort of get a, a better grasp on how the new president is going to balance um, national sovereignty, maritime sovereignty, uh, and and fishing rights and its relationship with China and its concerns over China being the big regional power and being able to use its heft. But you've had a lot of personal experience within the region. Um, what what are some of the, the similarities or differences you've seen uh, perhaps between the, the, the way uh, Vietnam and the Philippines um, uh, look and act toward uh, the, these fishing issues in the South China Sea? I think both countries uh, see their claimed South China Sea areas as vital elements of you know, national security and certainly important trade channels and their traditional fishing grounds. This is what's key to, I think, an understanding of the rising nationalism that I have seen particularly uh, more so in Hanoi uh, than in Manila. Both countries have proven the most vocal in expressing their alarm and concern over Beijing's assertiveness in the sea as it pertains to uh, access to their fishing grounds. And so uh, I agree with you, the South China Sea dispute you know, took a major turn when the Philippines went to the UN arbitration to challenge uh, China's nine-dash line. But nearly six years later, uh, since that landmark arbitration award, the situation in the South China Sea remains tense and maritime uh, incidents persist. Uh, I think for all purposes, Manila shelved that award to corner the economic largesse from the world's second largest economy. Vietnam, uh, of course, uh, and China relations are shaped by a very long history economy, uh, especially the cross-border trade and the geographic proximity. Hanoi's trade relationship with uh, China has dramatically curbed its, its responses uh, uh, in issues pertaining to their own fisheries. But of course, the ordinary Vietnamese uh, knows very well the history with China and the lives that have been lost during the incursions in the Paracels, what, 1974 and part of the Spratleys in 1988. Uh, I was there in uh, May of 2014 and witnessed how the Vietnamese citizens uh, really took to the streets. And this was a major uh, step for them to protest uh, 
when the Chinese National Offshore Oil Corporation moved its large deep water rig you know, to drill those test wells and exploration blocks off the Vietnamese central coast. Um, so both the Philippines and the Vietnamese are in agreement that they will protect and defend their national interests while upholding security and stability in the region through a peaceful and rules-based approach. But it's clear that power arrangements and alignments dictate the strategies of Vietnam and the Philippines. Uh, for now, uh, it's very encouraging that Vietnam and the Philippines announced that later this year, they will resume their joint oceanographic and marine science research expeditions between the Philippine Maritime and Ocean Affairs Center and the Vietnamese Institute of Oceanography that was initially established uh, what, in 1994 and suspended in 2007. So it's more than possible that these two countries can spur the development, uh, at least the conversation, once again, of a kind of trans-border marine peace park, since it represents an effective tool to conserve marine biodiversity and other resources. Right. And, and of course, in the background of all of this on the, on the idea of fishing cooperation has been the difficulty of ASEAN and China to, to establish a code of conduct for, for activity within the maritime space between them. Um, and, and as you note, there, there are real different um, historical and geographic relations uh, between China and its various neighbors that, that shape differing responses that are coming from, from the respective capitals. Um, and that in some ways gives China uh, a little bit of added leverage because it's able to exploit those differences. It's not bilateral um, competition or uh, mixed claims for territory. Often pieces of this maritime space are claimed by two or three or four claimants. And China has been able to, to utilize that to push its interest and keep the ASEAN nations divided. Well, one of the things I uh, found interesting in, in your book is the idea of uh, your um, science diplomacy. So in, in Dispatches from the South China Sea, you, you raise this idea that, that marine science cooperation um, could be a critical component uh, in the region. And as you just mentioned, that, that resumption between the Philippines and the Vietnamese for uh, maritime um, uh, scientific activity. Uh, we've seen this in the Cold War between the United States and the Soviets in space, where they used that element of scientific cooperation as a way to ease some of the uh, tensions between the big countries. Um, but with the with this complexity of, of different countries within the region and the real intense um, pressures on fishing, uh, how do you see this? Do, do you really see this as a viable approach and do you think that Chinese participation, um, that China would come in as an equal player in that participation, or would it be something that the Chinese may uh, again try to use as a tool to divide ASEAN and push the Chinese case over the rest of them? I think for years that uh, science has been adopted as a diplomatic tool for peace building um, by many countries. And there are many organizations that strengthen global scientific relationship, like the United Nations Environment Program. And while nations have different approaches, they have a shared framework. And my book really argues that the role of science for diplomacy are the establishment of science, scientific cooperation to improve relations in the 
contested region is a viable option. I mean, the diplomatic science tool, science diplomacy, has been used effectively in the Arctic through the Arctic Council and in the Mediterranean through their Mediterranean Action Plan to develop and maintain collaborative governance of marine resources. Uh, for sure, the understanding of historical and scientific perspectives in the context of the Arctic and the Mediterranean Sea policies offer some valuable lessons for possible adoption in the South China Sea. The South China Sea requires all claimant nations to, I really urgently, to adopt more confidence-building science-based measures and agree on cooperative joint projects then, and then move towards an ASEAN-based ocean governance body. Uh, prior to COVID, uh, in November of 2019, uh, both China and Vietnam held informal marine science workshops inviting claimant nation marine scientists and oceanographers and some policy experts to address the ecological policy issues in the sea uh, from climate change, environmental protection, and marine pollution. These are commonly shared problems. To be clear, marine biologists share a common language that really cuts across political, economic, and social differences. Furthermore, in substantive email communications, several Chinese marine scientists have gone on record in the past six months post-publication of my book, weighing in on their support of science cooperation surveys to address the state of coral reefs in the regions, since they too know that over 50% of the corals have been lost or degraded. And also, the common ground is based on, as you referenced earlier, sharing data about monsoons and tsunamis in the South China Sea. And this can easily include uh, the climate change adaptation and ocean pollution, especially plastics. So I, I do realize that the rise of nationalism is a huge challenge for science diplomacy because the prerequisite for the success of science diplomacy is cooperation among nations without being influenced by territorial claims. In some cases, this effort can be interpreted as a government compromising over sovereignty issues, which can easily fuel nationalist outcry among the population in the claimant nations. However, science diplomacy provides China a way to get along with the other claimants while maintaining its dominant position on the sovereignty issues. It's noteworthy also that uh, almost a, a decade ago, uh, Vietnam embarked on an ambitious initiative to create these national marine protected areas. And they refer to that body of water as their EC as opposed to the South China Sea. As a result, the country has already established uh, eight such areas and added eight more in 2020. China simultaneously has also embarked on a kind of ambitious rollout of more marine protected areas since their coasts are severely affected by pollution and climate change. These Chinese marine scientists know about the dire impact of habitat degradation and over-exploitation of resources. So these are, I think we have to regard these as incremental environmental triumphs. So these, um, the next logical stage is a marine protected area with an effective ASEAN regional management regime. If freedom of scientific investigation in the contested atolls and reclaimed islands were established and there was an expansion of scientific cooperation among the ASEAN marine scientists through more science-based workshops, this would help provide ASEAN, the ASEAN Regional Forum with a kind of honed science framework that could mobilize countries to better address these transboundary issues. 
and ultimately set aside perhaps some of these territorial claims. But my hope is that with ecological politics steering the South China Sea narrative, science diplomacy offers hope for protecting coral cathedrals, uh, marine habitats, saving marine species, and it can serve as a peace-building mechanism based based on science and scientific cooperation for other similar environmental conflicts. Uh, After all, uh, we are all in this together, and the body of ecological science reminds us that uh, life is interconnected. We all must become better stewards of the ocean. Let's hope that the South China Sea tide may be lifting cooperative marine scientific research surveys above the geopolitical noise and prey of sovereignty claims. Yeah, thank you. It's 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 important, I think, to emphasize this this role that sometimes we forget—the role of science, um, ecology, of, uh, of of food resources—as pieces both of the geopolitical landscape and as areas for um, sub-state cooperation and coordination, um, and how one manages geographies that are not. Uh, singularly territorial, particularly maritime geographies. I know in the Arctic, this is the big debate right now. What do you do in the Arctic for scientific cooperation and management cooperation if if seven of the eight Arctic nations are shunning the eighth uh, after the Russian uh, war in Ukraine? So these areas where trying to rebuild and utilize at least some aspect of that, that management are important. That's going to be important for the fisheries management uh, in the Pacific Northwest as well, is the U.S.-Russia uh, relationship there. So these are, these are sometimes overlooked, but I think it's important the way in which your book brings out the, the, the food security uh, issues, the maritime issues, the complexity of maritime issues, and this space for science and science cooperation. Um, and I do want to thank you uh, for joining me today. Thank you, Roger, for this opportunity to share my you know, passion for, well, the, the fishermen and the perils that they face. And of course, um, the, the idea is that I really have been a, a, a proponent for and a believer in the role of science. It can solve our problems today. Well, thank you. We've been speaking with James Morton, an independent environmental policy writer, a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute of SAIS, uh, and the author of the recent book, Dispatches from the South China Sea. I'm Roger Baker. If you want to know what happens next in the South China Sea, or know more about developments in the Indo-Pacific, or geopolitics in general, Subscribe to Rain Worldview today. Subscribe today at rainworldview.com. That's R A N E worldview.com. Mm-hmm.